9, Nehemiah chapter 9, as we continue in the book of Nehemiah, and we've also started some kind of extra stuff in uh, the adult su- Sunday school class, talking about lessons from revi- uh, on revival uh, from the book of Nehemiah, but uh, we're going to continue uh, going through each chapter here in Nehemiah, and two weeks ago we we're in the first four verses of this uh, particular uh, chapter of Nehemiah. And uh, so we want to continue on and uh, look at some very important uh, passages of uh, Scripture here in Nehemiah, uh, the rest of the chapter. I wonder if maybe there have been times in your life when you were joyful and sorrowful at the same time. Ever had a time when you were uh, just... Uh, overjoyed about something, but yet you're kind of sad about something. Well, maybe it had to do with your favorite ball team. They were playing great, but they lost the game. That's what happened last Tuesday night when the Twins were playing. They had a great game, but they lost by one point. Perhaps it was when you had a great day, but you were sad to see it come to an end. Or perhaps it was during the loss of a loved one that you knew they loved the Lord and they were in heaven. Happy and yet sad at the same time. You're sorry to see them go, but you rejoice that they are with the Lord in heaven. And the truth is that there are times when we seem to be kind of pumped up. And there are other times we seem to be bummed out. In fact, in our spiritual lives, we often experience indescribable joy when we think about God's amazing grace. And we also grieve and mourn over our own tendency to burn out spiritually. I think of Paul who linked joy and grief together in Romans chapter 7 verse 22. He says, For I delight in the law of of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Can you see how he was rejoicing and yet sad at the same time? We learned a couple of weeks ago, God's people were told to stop mourning, to start rejoicing. It's now later in that same month that the branch booths, the tents of twigs had been taken down, and God's word is given central attention once again. But instead of jubilant praise, there's a mood of repentant sorrow. Nehemiah chapter 8, as you look at Nehemiah 8, it's focusing on the word of God as it was read, as it was interpreted, as it was applied. In chapter 9, the people respond in prayer with genuine sadness over their sins. Listening to God through the word and responding to him in prayer are the twin aspects of every believer's experience. There can be no spiritual growth in your life, my life, without regular cultivation of this dual privilege and discipline. Here's another way to compare these two chapters. Chapter 8, Ezra and Nehemiah comfort the afflicted. In chapter 9, the comfortable are afflicted. Joy and grief 
are kind of two sides of the same same coin. And after a thrilling encounter with God, which causes them to break into celebration, the believers now come face to face with their own depravity. It's interesting that if you study uh, the three most powerful prayers ever written, particularly in the Old Testament, I don't. I'm not going to compare this with uh, uh, the Lord's teaching or the Lord's prayer in John 17, but uh, the most powerful prayers ever written in the Old Testament were found in chapter 9 of Ezra, chapter 9 of Nehemiah, and chapter 9 of Daniel. Kind of an extended prayer, which in fact is the longest prayer in the Bible outside of the book of Psalms. It was D.L. Moody who once asked someone to pray during a church service, and a man began his prayer, and he was still droning on after ten minutes had finally gone by. And finally, Mr. Moody stood up and said, While our dear brother is finishing his prayer, let's turn to number 342 and sing it together. Now, the prayer of Nehemiah is not that long, okay? But, you know, this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9 is a great model for us to study so we can learn to put first things first. This prayer is kind of a a, a mosaic of biblical quotations, of recollections, of images, of phrases. The Levites who led the people in this prayer of confession knew the Scripture They knew it by heart, and they relied on the language of the patriarchs and the prophets and the priests and the psalmists. And this confession accurately expresses the people's disappointment with themselves and their confidence in God. In other words, this is a declaration that has two elements. They confess who God is, and they confess their sins. Now, we're going to look at this subject with the following outline this morning, the greatness of God, the goodness of God, and the grace of God. And someone has correctly stated that history is his his story. And this chapter bears that out. Another familiar quote is that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons that history has to teach. And, no, and don't, no doubt you've heard those who do not remember the past are condemned to relive it. We can learn many valuable lessons from the experiences of Israel if we're willing to humble ourselves and receive, receive the truth. Now, this is one of those great chapters I love because it's history, right? And you'll love it too, right? Because you're great lovers of history. Notice, first of all, the greatness of God. In verse 1, it indicates that Israelites gathered together on the 24th day of the month. Now, on our calendar, that would have been probably October the 31st. And they were fasting, they were wearing sackcloth, and they had put dust on their heads. And these were common signs of mourning that were often done in the Old Testament to indicate deep sadness because of the loss or when they were ready to repent and recommit their lives to God. Verse 2 tells us that they had separated themselves from those who would have a bad influence on them. You know, it's always good to separate yourself from those who are trying to get you to do wrong. They heard the Bible read 
They no doubt came across Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 26, which said, And ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people that ye, might, that ye should be mine. Israel's history tells the tragic story of what happens when believers don't make a break from the world. And some of us, too, uh, this morning may be too cozy with the things of this world. And God wants us to live distinctive lives that draw people to the Savior. Someone has said that separation without devotion to the Lord can become isolation. But devotion without separation is hypocrisy. And notice as they stood up and they confessed not only the sins of their fathers, but their own sins as well. There was a commonality in their, in their guilt. Now we learn from the last message that they couldn't wait to hear the word of God. In verse 3, we read that they spent three hours reading the Bible and then three hours in confession and worship. And I believe the order here is significant. When we read the Word of God, we will see how far short we have, bec- uh, have come. And once we contemplate our own sinfulness, it should lead us to understand more about God's greatness. And we should break out into worship. Now verses 4 and 5 explain how they conducted the service. The Levites divided themselves into two groups. Some of them were standing on the stairs on one side of the assembly and the other group stood across from them. And these two groups kind of called back and forth to the congregation. One group confessing the sins of the people, the other praising God for his greatness. The first group called with loud voices, it tells us. This literally means they cried out. The second group focuses on God's character and they sang. In fact, the rest of the chapter gives us the actual words they used. Cries of guilt are followed by shouts of praise for God's greatness, His goodness, and His graciousness. Tears of grief form the lyrics of lament, while tears of joy transpose the anthem of adoration. Now here in verse 5, the worshipers invite the people to stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And Before they come to a time of necessary confession, they must first praise the one who alone can hear and pardon and change them. He never changes and he'll never go back on his word because he is eternal. And then the prayer continues in the last part of verse 5. Blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now in this chapter, the believers reflect on God's nature, his character, as well as his mighty works in history. Adoration is really the heart of true prayer. And if you're struggling with your faith this morning, it may be well that you. it's because your view of God is too small, too narrow. Or it may be that your theology is fine, but you don't think God has much to do with your life in the day in which we live. One theologian refers to this view as the weightlessness of God. 
he writes that our sense of inadequacy or ineffectiveness can be traced to our limited understanding and experience of God. He said God rests too, God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace too ordinary. The judgment too benign. The gospel too easy. And his Christ too common. You know, I think it's, it's very easy for us to just kind of take for granted what God has done for us. Just to kind of just go along, as I mentioned earlier in our Sunday school, just go through the routine every day. Listen, we must glory in the incomparable magnificence of our great God. Verse 6 starts off with a clear statement of God's greatness and that's grounded in the opening verses of Genesis. He says here in verse 6, Thou, even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all the things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. No room for evolution there. There's no one like God. The evidence of his greatness is seen in the works of creation. As it tells us in Psalm 19 and verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. We had the privilege of being at Camp Shatek on Friday night for their final service this week. And the evangelist gave us a great picture of, of our God and his creation. Talked about the sun and how big it is and how little we are compared to the sun. And then how little the sun is compared to the next star and the next one. And then all the way to the universe. If you ever stop and think about that, it's utterly amazing. And we have to say with the psalmist in Psalm 8 and verse verse, uh, 3, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? We're, we're not even a, a speck compared to this universe. And yet God loved every one of us. And he sent his son to die for our sins. We are important to God. We have a wonderful God. Sometimes if you stop and you contemplate what he's done in his creation, it's amazing that he even he even knows my name. How many millions of people have lived on this earth and he knows every one of them? It was during the French Revolution that many people wanted to get rid of Christianity forever. Hmm, that sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? On one clear night, an atheist boastfully proclaimed his belief to a poor peasant. 
And he said this, everything will be abolished. Churches and Bibles and the clergy, yes, even the word God itself will not be allowed to be used anymore. We should move, remove everything that speaks of religion. Boy, that sounds like today, doesn't it? Well, the peasant gave a quiet chuckle. And the atheist wanted to know what the believer was laughing about. The peasant then pointed to the stars and he replied, I was just wondering, how are you going to manage to get all those little bright lights out of the sky? You see, every one of those stars gives testimony to our great God, our Creator. Mr. Atheist, how are you going to get rid of all those little lights in the sky? By the way, Friday night when we left camp, there was the most beautiful moon that you could ever ever see. I don't know if you saw the moon on Friday night, but it was beautiful. And that's just a little speck compared to all the universe. Freedom of religion today is okay if you practice it within these church walls. But there are people who are telling you, you go outside here, don't even mention God, don't even talk about God. You know, the First Amendment. Yes, the socialists, the liberals are saying, you're free to worship whatever as long as you do it privately. No, that's not what the First Amendment says. You know, we live in a day when there are those who would just want to see us disappear. And you know what? One of these days they're going to get their wish. Jesus is coming back and he's going to take us to be home with him and we're going to be gone. It's always best to get, begin with the greatness of God. If we focus too much on what he gives to us or on what we want him to do for us, we find our hearts becoming selfish. I wonder this morning, do you see how great God is? As we sang, how great thou art. Or is your God too small? If you're struggling with your faith, you're seeing God as too small. Notice, secondly, the goodness of God. Now, the bulk of this chapter focuses on the goodness of God. Actually, verses 7 through 30, and God is very clearly the focal point as some uh, form the word uh, uh, here. You'll, you'll find here the word thou. Just look through these verses. I've actually even underlined all these verses that say thou and thee and thy. Used over 50 times. It's a focus on God. How many times do we pray and we're not focused on so much on God as we are on, Lord, I need this. Lord, I want this. Lord, do this for me. His prayer focuses on God. In fact, in verses 7 through 15, he's the subject of every sentence. And the word give is used in one form or another at least 16 different times. And this part of the prayer rehearses the history of Israel, revealing God's goodness to his people and their repeated failure to appreciate his gifts and obey his will. And as we've mentioned before, someone has said, he who forgets the past is condemned to repeat it. 
Romans 15.4 helps us see the value of studying the Old Testament. For whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Thank God for the Old Testament. God's goodness is seen at least in four ways here in Nehemiah chapter 9. First of all, forming the nation in verses 7 through 18. The prayer begins with how God formed the nation of Israel. He chose Abram and he brought him out of Ur and made a covenant with him. And then when God's people were suffering in Egypt, verse 10 says that God made a name for himself by dividing the sea and releasing his people from bondage. And then in verse 13, they recall God's goodness in giving the law. In verses 14 and 15, they praise God for how this newly formed nation was given possession of the land that was promised to them. And after this protracted praise time where the focus is on God and His goodness, the choir of confession sings out words of guilt in verse 16. Look at verse 16. It says there, But they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments. After all the goodness of God and bringing them about, They hardened their necks. They hearkened not to his commandments. And this is followed by the other side, the choir that's on the other side. Uh, They're saying in verse 17, But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great kindness, and forsookest them not. Yes, they were guilty, but God is good all the time. Secondly, we see the leading of the nation. After forming the nation, God committed to lead his people on a daily basis, even when they disobeyed him. We see that in verse 19. Yet thou in thy manifold mercy forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Look at verse 20. says that God gave his spirit to the people to provide for their spiritual requirement and food and water to meet their physical needs. Verse 21 tells us that for 40 years, as the children of Israel wandered in the desert, their feet did not swell and their clothes did not wear out. For 40 years. Went, wore the same outfit. Hmm, you wore that outfit last yesterday, didn't you? They didn't need new clothes. God was leading the nation. And then, thirdly, providing for the nation. God's goodness is seen through his forming of the nation and by how he led them on a daily basis. And then he also provided them and with everything they needed. He helped them defeat their enemies and gave them kingdoms and nations. He multiplied their numbers by blessing them with children. Look at verse 25. It says it's a good summary of how God showed his goodness by providing their needs. It says, and they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Did you catch that? God gave them much more than they deserved. The land was fertile. Their houses were furnished. 
The water was running and the fruit was waiting to be picked. They had everything they needed. They delighted in God's great goodness, which literally means they lived voluptuously. That's what the Strong's Concordance says. What does that mean? Living it up. Living in the luxury of God's provision. Now, in a similar way, God has given us everything we need as well. 2 Peter 1, verse 3, According to as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that it called us to glory and virtue. And so that leads us to a question. Are we living it up in God's goodness today? Now, some people are living it up uh, and forgetting God. But we need to live it up in God's goodness, or do we take him for granted? Are we more focused on what we don't have? You know, I wish, you know, I dream of this, or I, I, I sure wish I could have that. Now, whatever it is for you, maybe it's a car, maybe it's a house, maybe it's a tool, maybe it's a, it's a, a boat, maybe it's a, a, a particular kind of, boy, if I just had some ping golf clubs, man, I would be shooting the best score. No? I don't think the golf clubs make the difference. But so many times we're focused on what we don't have. And then fourthly, correcting the nation. Verses 26 through 30. After singing God's praises for his wonderful provision, the other choir hangs their heads and they sing in kind of a dirge-like manner. And they remember how their forefathers acted in the book of Judges. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put their law behind their backs. They killed your prophets. They committed awful blasphemies. That's called defiance. They knew what God wanted because he had made it clear. And even though every one of their needs had been met, God's people exhibited a rebellious spirit and tried to eliminate both the message and the messengers. Instead of praising God for his goodness, they blasphemed him. As a result, in verse 27, it tells us that God corrected them by handing them over to their enemies. I want you to notice how good uh, God's goodness pervades his personality. Again, the, the picture of the choir singing the last stanza of verse 27. And I think they sang it fortissimo. Take some music theory and find out what that means. It means loudly. And says, and in a time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And according to many thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. And as they kind of held their final note there, the confession chorus rises to its feet and they sing what sounds like the requiem in verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore leftest thou them in the land, the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. And then they're answered in this way. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies. By the way, aren't you glad God delivers us many times? How many times have you gone to the Lord and said, Lord, I blew it again. I sinned again. God is faithful. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The sad singers then belt out their somber words in verse 29 and 30. God corrected them by sending their enemies to rule over them, and God uses successive world powers to punish and correct them. First it was Assyria, then it was Babylon, then Persia and Greece, and then finally Rome. But all of this was done because he's a good God. He demonstrates that fact clearly through his forming of the nation by leading them, by providing for them, and even correcting them. Many years ago, I read the biography of Corey Tinboom. And one of the things she wrote was this Deep in our hearts, we believe in a good God. And yet, how shallow is our understanding of his goodness? How often I have heard people say how good God is. We prayed that it would not rain on our church picnic. And look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather. But God is also good when he allowed my sister sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. Could you say that this morning? That God is good even when something that tragic can happen? God is good. And some of us mistakenly thank God for his goodness only when things are going our way or when things uh, we want. The real challenge and the test of our discipleship is to thank him for his goodness even when we experience pain, when we have loss. God is great and God is good. There's one more character that's given prominence in this chapter, and that's the grace of God. The choir sings out again here in verse 31, God does not treat his people as they deserve. And that's a good thing because he is great, mighty, and awesome God. Because he is the God of grace, he's good to his people, even when they're not good to him. In mercy, God didn't give them what they deserved. In his grace, he gave them what they didn't deserve. Look down at verse 33, how be it thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. And so it's the grief team here that finishes this chapter by singing about the wrong things that the people had done and how they were slaves to others because of their sin. And did you notice the change in the pronouns here? Instead of focusing on their sins, the people now say, we have done wickedly. And until we personally own up to our specific uh, uh, transgressions and sins, we'll miss out on the experience of the grace of God. And then the closing stanza ends on a jarring note in verse 37. We are in great distress. The people recognize that generation after generation, the same sin problems seem to come back. And some of you here this morning are brave enough to admit that you're in great distress. You have your own history of good intentions that fell apart. You've seen the cycle of sin in your life where you messed up and then repent and then confess and then you walk with God and then you sin and then you repent and you confess all over again and God delivers you time and time and time again. God doesn't just offer help from heaven. He offers help from the inside to those of us who are born again. You know, it's possible to change. 
God himself invests in us in ways that we can discover over a lifetime. We don't have to stay in the sin cycle forever. Jesus has joined us in the process and that's indescribably good news. We have a royal, a divine, a permanent companion. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 4 and how it describes Jesus' ministry to us. In Hebrews 4 and verse 14 it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed from into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Instead of sinning and confessing and sinning and confessing over and over again, When we're struggling, failing, being tempted in the midst of the battle, let us draw near to him. And let's covenant together. God isn't sitting back waiting for us to fail. But there's grace and there's mercy, there's companionship and there's strength through Jesus. Not just when we have tears of gladness, but when we have tears of grief. Let us draw near to him. Now this entire chapter speaks of grace. God demonstrates his grace, greatness, his goodness. And what do the people do? They turn from him. They run from his word. They persist in doing their things their own way. In short, they sin repeatedly. At any point, God could have said, well, that's it. You've messed up too much. You're on your own. While he did send some correction into their lives, he never stopped loving them. And when they sinned, God exhibited his grace. Or as Romans 5 and verse 20 puts it, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Story is told about a young girl from Brazil who wanted to see the world. Discontent with a home having only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove. She dreamed of a better life in the city. And one morning, she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria hurriedly packed to go find her. And on her way she, uh, uh, to the bus stop, she went into the drugstore to get one last thing. Pictures. She sat in the photo, photo booth, closed the curtain, and spent every cent she had on pictures of herself. With that purse full of these small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to the city. And Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. And when pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. And knowing this, Maria got, began her search in the bars, in the hotels, in the nightclubs, any place with a bad reputation. And she went to them all. And at each place, she left her picture taped maybe to the bathroom mirror or tacked to the bulletin board in the hotel, fastened to a corner phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a little note. It wasn't long before both the money and the pictures ran out. And Maria had to go home. So the weary mother wept 
on the bus as she began her long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that a young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her face, young face was tired. Her brown eyes were no longer dancing with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for a secure pallet. Yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. She reached the bottom of the stairs, and her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there in the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Her eyes burned, and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. And written on the back was this invitation. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And so she did. Listen, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. Jesus wants you to come home. Here in verse 38, it says, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. The people made a sure covenant and they put it in writing. Now I want to close with three words this morning because that verse tells me three things. Number one, it was personal. Number two, it was practical. Number three, it was public. In regards to being personal, what is it that you need this morning? First of all, do you personally see God as great, as good, as gracious? If not... Determined to lock into those theological truths and never doubt them again. Because God is great. God is good. God is gracious. Personalize your faith by making those three things real in your life. And then the practical. Based on who He is, what His Holy Spirit is prompting you to do right now in your heart. Think about what practical steps he wants you to put into practice into your life. And then the word public. How can you make your decision public? You know, don't keep your faith a secret. Don't keep your decisions to yourself. Give yourself some accountability this morning. You could call a friend. You could tell him or her. And if you're a believer, never been baptized, you could take that step. Or if you slip out of your pew this morning during the closing song, come forward for confession or conversion. Perhaps it's been a long time since you've walked these aisles. Or any aisle of any church. But won't you come as Jesus is tenderly calling? Our Father in heaven.